So we're gonna, we are continuing with our series in Jonah. We're looking at Jonah chapter 3 today, from verses 8 to verse 10. Jonah 3, 8 to 10. And the question that makes this title for today's message is, does God change his mind? Does God change his mind? Because from this text, it seems that he does, and that's what I want to address today with the help of the Lord. So I pray that the message will be a blessing to you. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, you can always email church or email me for those who do have my email address, and I'll be glad to uh, even elaborate further. So we're going to open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, and we'll read just a few verses verses 8 to 10. Now, for last week, we could not upload the entire video, just the audio, and uh, hopefully this week that will not happen. We've been having some complications or some technical difficulties, as they're called, but hopefully this week we can upload that. The, the, the uh, uh, audio team works very hard making sure that everything goes well, but mishaps do occur. So Jonah chapter 3, please stand for the reading of God's word. From verse 8, we'll, we'll read. But every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and the people are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish and when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. And so he did not do it. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And we ask for grace as we delve into this passage, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and above all, Give us a resolute heart to obey. And this we ask in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> There's a story about Albert Einstein uh, lecturing his students in the 30s, 1930s. And after lecturing his students, he gave them a test. And a year went by and then he lectured his students uh, some more. And after a year, he gave them the same test. And so his associate um, was uh, a little bit surprised by this. And so I asked him, Dr. Einstein, um, you already submitted this test last year. Same questions. He goes, yes, the questions are the same, but the answers are different. So that sounds strange. And it seems sometimes when we're reading Scripture, you're asking yourself a question, and there is one answer. Ask yourself the same question with another passage of Scripture, and you get a different answer. And at times, that may happen, because it's happened many times to me as I've been reading through Scriptures. Um, so let me explain when it comes to theology there are certain doctrines that are 
foundational doctrines. They, are, they speak about God's nature. Uh, one such doctrine is the immutability of God, the fact that God does not change, that he is an unchanging God. And his immutability is closely linked with his sovereignty, that God rules and overrules over everything. And as believers, we accept these doctrines as um, self-evident about the nature of God. They are clearly shown in Scripture, and from the earliest days, the church has always believed in the immutability of God. But however, when you read a passage like this, it puts into question the immutability of God because we see here God changing his mind. At least that's what it appears. Whereas other verses show that God does not change. So we have the same questions but different answers. Which one is it? And um, we're going to be looking at that today. Divine work is what we see here in the salvation of the Ninevites. And that salvation that happened in the people of Nineveh is rooted in God's immutability and sovereignty. And we're going to see that today. So there are four observations that we'll, I will want to draw your attention to. Four observations. The first is the understanding of their sinfulness as a people. The Ninevites were extremely aware that they were sinful. Verse 8, the king says these words. This is the king of Nineveh. Some scholars say he was the governor, basically, because in those days everyone was called a king. This is not necessarily the king of the entire empire. But regardless, the the, uh, king of Nineveh says these words. But every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and people are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. So here we see an unusual phenomenon. The king who speaks on behalf of the people of Nineveh admits to the sinfulness of his heart and to the sinfulness of the hearts of the people of Nineveh. He was acknowledging not only that they were sinners, but that they were sinners deserving of God's wrath. So the judgment that was coming their way based on Jonah's message was a judgment that was rightfully theirs. This man does not excuse his sins. He doesn't gloss over them. He does not blame someone else for their sins and for their wicked deeds. He acknowledges that he and the Ninevites were indeed evil. Now, this may seem perfectly normal to us who read about the Assyrians and how brutal they were and how they terrorized the countries around them and enjoyed impaling people and skinning people alive and burying them alive with their heads left out and so forth. And we read about the brutality of the Assyrians and say, well, of course, they ought to acknowledge that they were wicked people. However, it's not normal for us as humans to acknowledge our sins and much less repent. What is normal as humans is to deny our sin 
and to hide our sins. That's normal. Admitting is not in the picture. Jeremiah the prophet confirms as much when speaking about God's people, all right? And God's people were denying and hiding their sins and saying, oh, we're okay. And this is what Jeremiah says, speaking on God's behalf. In Jeremiah 8, 4 to 6, we read, do people fall and not get up? Does one turn away and not repent? Why has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold on to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard. They have spoken what is not right. No one repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course like a horse charging into battle. Now, these are the people that were acquainted with God's law. They knew the scriptures. They had the priests who were teaching and the temple as a reminder that they were a special people. And yet, they justified themselves while living in open rebellion. They were not admitting. They were hiding and denying. This is the natural condition. This is the natural response of an unregenerate heart. We are unable to see how evil... We are, how radically corrupt we are. We are, as Jeremiah reminds us in verse 17, verse 9, a verse that I've quoted often, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. That's the condition of the human heart. We're born blind to the sinful state of our soul. We are unable to see how radically corrupt we truly are unless... God does a miraculous work of opening our eyes to see the sinfulness of our hearts. The reason the king and the people of Nineveh saw their wickedness and acknowledged their evil deeds is because God opened their eyes to see and gave them understanding of how vile they were. And so they repented, they admitted, they confessed. Jesus said these words to the religious leaders of his day, those who were well acquainted with the law. Jesus said this, those who were with him, with Jesus, from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, the question, we are not blind too, are we? To Jesus. And Jesus answers back, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain, we see, your sin remains. Isn't that interesting? See, the blind person who says, I'm blind, and admits that he's blind, and that he cannot see, then that person is a step closer to seeing. The person who says, oh, I can see, I'm a decent person, I'm okay, is blind and is dead. Spiritual blindness is the status quo of an unregenerate heart. It will not admit to the filth in his or her heart. We are blinded by our goodness, by our religiosity, by our works, by our good deeds, by our position, whatever it is. Blinded and therefore refuse 
to confess our sin, an understanding of how, how wicked our hearts are only takes place if God opens our eyes to see, opens our minds to understand, opens our hearts to embrace this truth. Only God can do that. And this is the miracle that we witness in Nineveh. They repented because they saw and understood their radical corruption. That's the amazing thing. That's the amazing thing about Nineveh. It was nothing less than a miracle. Now notice, secondly, the uncertainty revealed in the king's words. In verse 9 we read, Who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. So he tells everyone to repent, put wear sackcloth, sit in dust. Even the animals have to be wearing sackcloth. No one eats, no one drinks. Just repent because this is real. And they do this for 40 days. And he says, who knows? And it's an interesting question. After commanding everyone to wear sackcloth and repenting, he gives them only a faint hope. Why only a Because the words of Jeremiah gave no hope, no glimmer of hope. Forty days and you will all be destroyed. There is no hope, right? And so the king gives a faint hope by saying, maybe, who knows? Now, why did the king not express hope in the mercy of God? Why? I mean, God's word says clearly that God is a merciful God, that he does not treat us according to our sins, that he is someone who gives us far less than what we deserve. Why doesn't he admit to the mercy of God, to the kindness of God, to God's wonderful love? Why doesn't he? Because the king did not know God in that light. The king was not a Hebrew. The king had no understanding of the scriptures of the Hebrews. He had no awareness of who God was. He never knew about this God because there was no covenant relationship between the Ninevites and God as there was between Israel and God. There was a covenant there. That's why the part of the scriptures called Old Testament or Old Covenant has to do with the scriptures that the Hebrews had. These scriptures were read by the Jews or Hebrews. But Nineveh did not read scriptures. The people of Nineveh or did not enjoy the presence of God and the worship of God, did not have the temple and so forth. They had none of that. This fact alone left them in the dark as to what to do with a God they knew very little about. They believed the message, which was in itself remarkable, when Jonah spoke it, quickly. I mean, he walked into the city, and it says it was a three-day journey to go through the city, so it was relatively large, a three-day walk. And he went into the city for one day alone, one day, and then he left. And for one day, he just spoke, 40 days and you're finished, and the people immediately repented. Now, I read a verse last week about God shutting the heavens and that he would hear from heaven when the people repent and turn from their wicked ways. But notice carefully which people. 
in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague among my people, not the nations, my people, and my people who are called by my name. So it's only for God's people. This promise, it's very important we understand this. Humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. This has nothing to do with Moab, nothing to do with Ammon, nothing to do with Egypt. The, all the other surrounding countries were excluded from this promise. This was a promise that applied only to his people. The king of Nineveh did not have this promise to hold on to. What did he have? Nothing. He had nothing. The promise that God would forgive sin and wickedness when genuine repentance was present was reserved for the people of God. These were the blessings that were part of the covenant. Conversely, if they disobeyed, if they walked away from the law of God, if they worshipped idols, the curses would multiply. So the other nations did not have the blessings that Israel had, but they neither had the curses that Israel had. So there are multiple blessings and multiple curses that would come upon them. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. And Israel had received much from God. And therefore, much was expected from them. The king of Nineveh knew nothing of this. He was totally in the dark. He knew nothing of Scripture, knew nothing of the covenant. He could not recite a promise. He could not turn to God's people, uh, to the people of Nineveh, rather, and say, God's mercy are from everlasting to everlasting. He couldn't say that because he knew nothing. The uncertainty revealed in the king's words are nowhere in Scripture. For those of us who know the Bible, we know that God is a merciful God. That God is slow to anger. That God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That God does not give us what we are actually deserving with regards to our sin. He doesn't. We, don't, we know that. We know, for example, that God is ready to forgive, as it says in Micah 7, 18, 19. Who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoing and passes over a rebellious act of the remnant, meaning the part that would be saved from it, of Israel, of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again take pity on us, his people, and he will trample on our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So here we see God's forgiveness offered by God to the remnant, to those who would eventually repent after being scattered throughout the many countries for their rebellion. God would bring back a remnant. That was the promise for his people. Now what about the church? What about the church? What certainty do we have? Well, our certainty is greater than that of the people who lived under the Old Covenant, and far greater. We live 
under a better covenant, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us. It's the covenant of grace. They had the covenant of Moses, which in and of itself was a great covenant, but it pales when compared to the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace has been signed with the Lord's blood when he died on the cross. And under this covenant, the covenant of grace, the believer has special privileges. First of all, there are no curses in the covenant of grace. You notice that? You read the entire New Testament and there's no curse. Why? Because he became a curse for us. There's discipline, there's correction. We can grieve the Spirit and the Lord does discipline his children, but there are no curses for God's people. Many privileges that we have. For example, here's one that we are familiar with as children of God, as Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a beautiful promise. Right? We can call him Father. Abba, in fact, which means Daddy. We can approach the throne of grace boldly, says the writer to the Hebrews. We have a great high priest that forever sits and represents us in the high places, seated at the right hand of God. And he never has to leave the Holy of Holies. On and on it goes. The privileges under the new covenant that we enjoy are far greater than the privileges that the people of God enjoyed under the old covenant. And, but the king of Nineveh had none of this, had, had no understanding of anything. And so his best was, let's hope, let's see what happens. That's like us saying, I wonder how the inflation will be. Let's hope it doesn't go up high. That's it. That's all we can say. Now let's see the unmistakable work of God. In verse 10 we read, When God saw their deeds and that they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. How can anyone turn from his evil ways? How can anyone acknowledge that he's a sinner? Unless God intervenes, as I said earlier on. Um, genuine repentance is only inspired by God. The Holy Spirit works in the heart of man to produce genuine repentance. From the text, it seems as though God uh, looks at their deeds and sees something that he was totally unexpected. Now imagine the angels in heaven. That's how we can read this. You know, their swords unsheathed and they're ready to come into the picture and just pour the wrath of God on the city of Nineveh. And yet all of a sudden there's a change. Something is different. An order is given, sheathe your swords. The wrath is pulled back. How did it all come about? Well, some say that within every human heart, this possibility of change is possible. Pelagius, a, an Irish monk of the fourth century, argued with Augustine that we have the capacity within us to change, to do good. And God does not have to do a work of grace, of changing our default inclination. There is no such thing as a default inclination, according to Pelagius. We can do evil, we can do good. We can choose. But is this true? Ephesians chapter 2 begs the question because it says in Ephesians 2 verse 
1, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 6, and you were dead in your offenses and sin, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful passage. There are so much to unpack here. We're just going to touch briefly a few things. First, I'll draw your attention to the what Paul says right from the start, you were dead in your offenses and sins. You were not sick. You were not comatose. You were not partly alive. You were not barely making it. You were dead. Dead is dead. Everyone outside of Christ are the true walking dead. And live, as Paul says here, according to the course of this world. In other words, before being born from above, before being given the new birth, we did whatever our dead souls and our dead mind were inclined to do. And as such, we were enemies of God because, as Paul says clearly, we were children of wrath. The wrath of God was upon us. We were destined to be judged and eternally cast away from God's presence into everlasting damnation or hell, if that's clear. Having said this, having read this, what Paul is saying, how can anyone in his or her fallen state do anything of that is good in the eyes of God. How can anyone repent? Because repentance is a fruit, the fruit of repentance, as John the Baptist called it. How can we bring forth the fruit of repentance if we're dead? It's just impossible. For this reason, Paul writes that God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us while we were dead in our sins, made us alive. He quickened us. He brought us to life so that we could repent, so that we could respond, so that we can say, have mercy on me, O God. But apart from that regenerating work, apart from that divine intervention, we would have no possibility, no inclination, no desire to repent because we are born blind, we are born dead, we are born unable to see ourselves and to see the condition of our heart. The fear that overtook the king and the people of Nineveh was nothing less than a divine work. Yes, God saw the fruit of repentance in the Ninevites, fruit that he himself inspired and brought into existence. It was totally a divine work. So that we can safely say that the repentance manifested among the Ninevites was not something 
generated by them. Not generated by them. It could not have come. If the people of Israel who had the law and had the temple, the oracles, the priesthood, the sacrifices, were unable to repent, having received so much, how could a group of people who had received nothing repent? How? That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, there is no one who seeks out God. They've all turned aside together. They've become corrupt. And I've understood this about myself. I've understood this truth that my default inclination is to disobey if it were not for the grace of God. So repentance is a divine work, just like the Spirit of God had to move over the chaos before there was creation and the beauty and the majesty that came out of that was a divine work. So the chaos of our life, the deadness of our hearts and the blindness of our eyes have to be moved upon by the Spirit of God so that the beauty of repentance and the beauty of confession and the beauty of turning to God and all of that combined, which is a work of grace, can take place. In short, God saw a divine work in which he took pleasure. An unregenerate man cannot repent apart from divine intervention. He cannot see God unless God stirs him to seek him. Salvation is a sovereign work. It is by grace alone. The Ninevites turned from their evil way because God caused them to turn. Now, last week I mentioned how the four marks of conversion, and when their conversion is en masse, we call it a revival, because that is the best way to define it, because it's not just one conversion or two, three, a whole city here converted, and therefore it's a divine work. And I told you the four marks uh, started with the first being faith, then humility, then prayer, and then repentance. And from uh, what I said, some may have concluded that these are, some, these are uh, virtues that we need to muster up. That they have to, we have to go deep within us and, and find that faith. Go deep within us and find that humility and so forth. But all of it, it comes from God. We're saved by grace and by grace alone. And so without the grace of God, there can be none of those virtues that can be manifested in our lives. Yes, there is a response. Yes, there is a response from our part. But God has to move first before any response takes place. So the response on my part is subject to God's divine intervention. So in reading verses like this, like the one in uh, verse 10 again, let's reread it. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them, so he did not do it. Many conclude that God does change his mind because he changed his mind here. I came across some reading material a while back 
where the writer reminded Christians that we can change the mind of God if we but pray in earnest. If we get on our knees and pray and pray and pray, we can change his mind. Well, first of all, we can't pray unless the Spirit helps us because we don't know how to pray. Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And so prayer, even prayer, the gift, must be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we are going to be praying selfishly, self-centered prayers, uh, short-sighted prayers, prayers that uh, have very little eternal impact, but they're just prayers regarding our immediate comfort. We don't have the desire to pray according to the Spirit unless the Holy Spirit does that work in our lives. So this individual is saying, we can pray, we can change the mind of God, we can, do, we can make things happen that in the uh, stratosphere, in the heavenlies, we can make things happen through our prayers. And he brought example after example. We can change the mind of God. Well, this verse seems to uh, confirm that position. But before we come to that conclusion, we need to look at all of Scripture in its context. Right? Um, there's a verse in Genesis chapter 6 where, again, it conveys the idea that God had a change of heart, a change of mind. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 6, this is just before the flood, after creating man. We read in Genesis 6, 5 to 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Verse 6, So the Lord was sorry. Read that carefully. And so the Lord was sorry, or he was grieved, that he had made mankind on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So once again, what the verse seems to convey is the idea that God had second thoughts about creating man. In other words, um, after doing everything, he goes, you know, uh, I wish I hadn't created him. You know, I could have done a better job. I could have prevented all of this. What could I have done here? I imagine God saying that. But that's what many people understand this verse to mean. But how can that make any sense in light of other verses that clearly speak about God's plan, God's redemption plan in the ages, in ages past. For example, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. All right, so he chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. Now, please follow if we look at the time continuum, before there ever was a world, before there ever was a creation, God, the triune Godhead, chose a people to be his. But when did he do it? Before the foundation of the world, before creation. Not after the fall, not after creation, but before creation. So if before creation, God already had in mind to redeem a people and make them his own, to make them the bride of Christ, his son. Why then, after creation, he says, I'm really, I'm really 
depressed. Something wrong here. What happened? Does that hold water? It doesn't make any sense. In fact, Peter goes on to say regarding Christ himself. Jesus, in 1 Peter 1.20, was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. In other words, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, was set aside for, for a special moment in history to die a brutal death as the worst sinner. And so becoming sin, we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. But when was that determined? Before the foundation of the world. So Jesus Christ was set aside way before the world was created, way before the fall. This all happened before. So when we see God saying these words, I am sorry that I created man, it must mean something else besides him having second thoughts. It must. The plan of salvation was conceived in eternity past and is perfectly carried out. And the fall was part of that. The creation was part of it, of course. The fall was part of it. Everything that unfolded, as we read it in Scripture, is part of the plan. Everything is moving towards a definite goal, which is Christ and the bride glorified together in heaven. That's the goal. So how do we explain that God was sorry for creating man in Genesis 6? Or how do we explain that here we see God saw their deeds and had a change of heart? How do we explain that? Since God never changes. Well, when we read words like God saw or God was grieved, we need to keep in mind that this is nothing that it's nothing more than a figure of speech. It's anthropomorphism. That's all it is. It's like ascribing to God human traits so that we can better grasp uh, the, what God is doing in our time-space continuum. But outside of the time-space continuum, God has his, his plan sealed and fixed for all eternity. The Bible is very clear regarding God's nature. In Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he would lie, nor a son of man that he would change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make good? Or again, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't need to change his mind. It's impossible. Otherwise, he would not be God. And open theism is the belief that there are many possibilities of God's will that can unfold based on what we decide as humans. That would make God's will dependent on the human will. But the human will can never ever determine God's perfect and sovereign will. Human will is always subject to 
divine will. So when we read that God relented or changed his mind regarding the destruction of Nineveh, it is so that we can better relate to what God is doing. But from a divine standpoint, everything went according to the divine plan. So when God speaks to Jonah, and Jonah runs away from God and hides, right? He can't hide because Psalm 139 says clearly, where, where can I hide from God's presence? Nowhere, says David, right? There's no way. But it says it from a time-space continuum. Here he goes. Jonah is hiding. Then Jonah finds a ship heading to Tarshish. He goes to the lower part of the ship and he falls asleep. Everything is unfolding as God already knew that it would unfold. And then finally he admits to what he has been doing, that he's been uh, disobeying and he's thrown overboard. And then God appoints a sea creature that swallows him and keeps him in its belly for three days. And then he's spewed out on shore. And then he makes his way. All of that is God's doing. This is not God being a spectator and just letting it happen. And, and then we, he write, we write, someone writes the story. This is God orchestrating while allowing the individual to express his will so that at the end, God is glorified. That's what we see. So we see the Ninevites repenting, Jonah obeying, and speaking the word because God brought this about and made it happen. The Ninevites only humbled themselves before a mighty God because it was inspired by God so that God took pleasure in the deeds and the work of repentance. We see nothing less here than sovereign grace. That's what we see. Grace and grace alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, and all to the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas that have, were rediscovered during the Reformation, and we see it, these truths woven all throughout Scripture so that we as God's people can be secure. If we don't understand these truths or we, we don't believe them, we are going to suffer in our walk. And I say this from experience because I remember when I did not hold these truths dear to my heart and I doubted the sovereignty of God and I doubted the uh, fact that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and even though I would say the verse, Ephesians 2.8, right, still I did not fully believe in it and, 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 and the election of the church and so forth. When I didn't believe these truths, I was a far more insecure believer. I was a far more worried believer. I, anxiety ruled my heart. But the moment I understood these truths, and the moment they, or not the moment because it was a long process, but as I began to grasp more and more these wonderful truths, they changed me. They made me more secure. There was a, there's a certainty in my heart now that whatever can be, befall us and things do befall us, we can rest assured that those who are his are his forever because he called them, he saved them, and made them his very own. That's what we sang earlier on. He will hold me fast. I'm not holding on to him, though in a way I am, right? Because I respond by faith, but he is holding on to us. And that's why we can celebrate Holy Communion together and rejoice in his wonderful grace.
We're going to continue with the story of Jonah next week, and I hope that it continues to be a blessing to your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful word, for your amazing grace. Lord, if salvation depended even in a small measure on what I can do and how much I can trust and how much I can repent, then I have every reason to be afraid because I know my heart. I know that that small part I would fail miserably at, at, at fulfilling. There would be no way I can do my part. We need you, Lord. We need your grace. We need your intervention. We need you to move in our lives so that you can be glorified in our lives. Thank you for revealing your grace to as many who have, you have drawn to Jesus Christ. But there are some who are following, whether here today or online later on, who do not know you, who are still in darkness. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would move on their hearts, draw them to the Savior. May they see that in Christ, salvation is full and free because he paid it all. Lord, be glorified in the lives of your children in these days in which we live of uncertainty and great confusion. Oh, Lord, help us to be a light wherever we are to the glory of your name. And this we pray in the wonderful and glorious name of Jesus. Amen.